is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are discussing Mrs. Dalloway, which is Virginia Woolf's 1925 novel about one day in the life of some lady. That's it. That's the whole book. (laughs) It's like Ulysses in that way. So um, I picked Mrs. Dalloway and I genuinely just like, I just love this book. Like I dorkily love it in the way that people ask you what your favorite novels are and you say, this is good. I like it like that. And I'm excited to talk about it with you. But Well, I'm not normal. You know, some of the novels that I care about the most, I'm not like, oh, guys, you should read this. It's good. Yeah. Like Robinson Crusoe and me. <laughs> right. Actually, quite a bit like that. A person should read it, maybe, but yeah. not for fun, yeah. really. Um, Everyone read the sermons of Jonathan Edwards. I I have no yeah. no self consciousness about making this recommendation. Yeah, I mean there are some overlaps, right? Like I tell people to read Benito Serino, and I give a shit about its life, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, for <laughs> yes, sure. Yes. Yeah, she's just like amazing and masterful. And if you haven't read Orlando, it is also good as fuck. She has a sizable number of excellent novels, which is I love that. And one of the things I've been thinking about since reading Merve Emre's new intro to this is how completely airtight this book is, like structurally speaking, and just how much editing and struggle went into that. Wolf journaled a lot about how hard it is to write. And that is just wonderful and freeing that she was like, actually, this is really hard and sucks. (laughs) And that she wrote like many novels, still thinking that. She was an extremely queer grouch. That's an important thing that we have as many of those in the world as possible. (laughs) I mean, in general, she did not seem like she was much fun, which is a fairly basic qualifier for like almost all modernists. I mean, in fairness, the upper classes had just slaughtered 20 million people. So, you know, like. (laughs) Yeah, but. We but can we'll, all be, we'll be fun sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> James Joyce could still be fun. They're yeah. fun guys. Langton Hughes seems fun, but mostly not. And Joyce is still my favorite modernist of the, the uh, United K- British Isles. What do I say? Because <laughs> they're not the same thing, and I'm going to piss off the ghost of James Joyce He's right your now. favorite Irish writer. Is what he's, he has I'm not no sure that's chance. true, though, because of Oscar Wilde. Uh, yeah. Well, that's what I say. I, I was very emphatic in that show that this is an Irishman, sir, madam. <laughs> I just don't want to crush that for James Joyce. You know, yeah, I don't want to yeah. be like selling him for anything other than he is. The nation state is bullshit anyway. So, there, you know, that's right. No, I know, absolutely. But, you know, British is a decidedly imperial formation. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, it so is- to be fair, modernists did not think the nation was bullshit and spent a lot of energy trying to defend it. They did. Yeah. They did. I was just trying to let you get both of them in somehow <laughs> <laughs> without like, oh, but have you even considered Faulkner? Like, yes, I've, I've thought about that. Thank you. I've already had enough time to talk shit about Zora Neale Hurston in my life. <laughs> but I do love Wolf. Like, I really do. She's often really funny and people sort of never describe her that. There are moments in this book where she describes some upper class affectation in a way that's so perfect that it cracks me up. Yeah. I find her genuinely funny. Yeah. She's really concerned with her historical present in a way that I think is interesting and smart and not heavy handed and 
very engaged with these modernist questions about durée and psychological time, like from Bergson and and the problem of consciousness. And I can't wait. I think she's great. Yeah, I, well, I have a lot of notes here, so I must have had a lot of reasons <laughs> to want to read this. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I had not read much Wolf at all. I th- I think maybe just a room of one's own. Uh, but I've always found her a really fascinating person. I mean, you know, her biography is compelling and and tragic and really interesting and very famous too. The Bloomsbury Group is wild, like I mean, full on nineteen twenties hippies. But also, John Maynard Keynes is one of the many of that's Forster. the craziest thing, yeah. And Lytton Strachey, who's the brother of the famous Freud translator James Strachey, and and Megan just informs me that Hogarth Press <laughs> published Freud in English for the first time, which is like lol what. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, one reason I wanted to read this, I've been wanting to read more modernist novels since we did. Ulysses, <laughs> I did years, it. You know? Yeah, I know. I, it's fine. I mean, I, it's great. I like I enjoy Ulysses. Um, Who doesn't like farts? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I feel like I pulled Tristan into the modernist novel fan club. <laughs> My exposure to modernism was largely like, oh, man, I like Hemingway, but I feel bad about liking Hemingway. You know? so, yeah, you, there are many less problematic modernist space. <laughs> well, we're just more flat out more interesting in, in many yeah. ways. You know, I, I think that what Wolf does with stream of consciousness duration and like in this novel, uh, maybe in her others as well, I don't know, stream of consciousness is this window into almost like kind of a communal psychology or something like that is really intriguing. I've talked about this a lot. One narrative of the rise of the novel that shapes so much 18th and 19th century scholarship is the idea that the novel is like a unique window into interiority and the mind. And I think one thing that people like Wolf and Joyce are showing and probably explains why they both like my dude Lawrence Stern so much, who had no interest whatever in realism of that kind. They is both that- really like Jane Austen too. Yeah, they did. And who is 100% of that sort of like realist mode. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm, it's like completely, it's like a natural genealogy. No, for sure, for sure. And well, that's weird too, like a genealogy that would draw both Stern and Austin, who (laughs) seem to be on completely (laughs) opposite sides of the uh, capacity of the 18th century novel. But I mean, you know, I think like, so why they might be interested in like Tristram Shandy, the mind isn't realist. We don't walk around with an omniscient narrator in our heads doing close third and if we did, that would be yourself, fucked up. buddy. <laughs> okay, all right, <laughs> fine. Maybe some of us do. That sounds very panopticonic and fucked up to me. But, Look, yeah. some people have main character syndrome. It's called Calvinism. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> fair. fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to sort of just talk about that, the narrative technology of this. Also, as a big commie, I love talking about the interwar period and how the British aristocracy and bourgeoisie really thought for like five minutes they were just going to put their old world back together when, again, they had just slaughtered 20 billion people and the Bolsheviks at this very moment are saying, the fuck you are, right? Yeah. (laughs) But uh, and just as as my coda on that, did you know that of the World War I monarchs, George V, Victoria's grandson, Wilhelm II, Victoria's grandson, Nicholas II, married to Victoria's granddaughter. What a reprehensible group of incestuous freaks. And this novel kind of dunks on them, and I'm, I'm down for that. I was, t- Tristan and I were texting because I sort of accidentally watched this thing on The Last Czar, and um, that they were surprised that their kid had hemophilia is like, <laughs> how, 
did Un- her, like her <laughs> uncle died of it like her brother they should have been relieved he didn't have 12 eyeballs yeah for real he wasn't born a lizard awful awful <laughs> awful class <laughs> I also like that the male offspring of incest are particularly like really, really in bad shape. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everything it's, seems to just ride that Y chromosome. <laughs> it's true. It act. It's true, though. It is. Wait, really? Yeah. No, it yes. Is, yeah. Yes. That's why. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> God. We should talk about the Habsburg sometime yes. on the show. <laughs> and their chins. And their chins. And all their manner jaws. Of other things. Yeah. Oh. Uh-huh. Didn't Carlos, that guy also have like a heart the size of a robin's egg or something? Carlos, this I believe second of Spain. Yeah, <laughs> real bad. But yeah, not anyway. not great. I'm sure all manner of things that shouldn't have been were the size of a robin's egg. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that's probably true. Yeah, you know, it seems like you two had a lot of reasons for wanting to read this, but I only had the one, and it's Nicole Kidman's prosthetic nose in the hours. Yeah, um, <laughs> brilliant piece of plastic or silicon or whatever yeah and artistry both mixed together but it is amazing to me that the virginia wolf was able to accomplish so much and much of it i learned about by watching the hours and uh, it's made me feminist <laughs> good for yeah. you so not only was virginia wolf all this stuff that you guys just said but she was also in days of thunder <laughs> uh-huh she wrote and then she wrote a room of one's own, escaped a Scientologist's husband, and somehow she managed to find time to write Orlando and and be the mother to photosensitive haunted children in the 2001 classic The Others. Excellent. Isn't that also the turn of the screw? Yeah, it is. Kind of. But but worse. <laughs> I well, also, sorry. I just want to pause. Uh, you can't. We can't just move past Days of Thunder that quickly because that is one of my favorite films to like hate watch from that period. Adore. Uh, it is like if you know, like, what if Top Gun were somehow stupider, right? <laughs> and involved race cars. <laughs> like, I am just uh, sitting on my hands. I'm so carefully not talking about. How Eyes Wide Shut is based on a book. True story? uh, Well, probably. It's based on a book by Arthur Schnitzler. No? Uh, Nobody? Nobody? No. (laughs) Help me out. Would we like to know more about the German novella? I've only brought it up a couple. Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) He and Freud Freud were palsy. And he's like a a hysterically amazing libertine and novelist and modernist. Anyway, I'll stop. And his eyes were wide shut. And his um, eyes were well. The book is called Traum Novelle. It's called Dream Novella. Oh, well, I wrote about it a lot in cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean that's scary, and br- it sort of brings it back to the others in a way because it's st- scary and psychological. And the, also, I will say the horror in Mrs. Dalloway is is psychological. So mm-hmm. I think that another reason sort of after the fact to want to read it is the unity in her artistic works. I mean, it's incredible. She was able to really, like she was able to perfect the use of stream of consciousness. It's really amazing. And all these other <laughs> modernist literary techniques. And, and and while she was doing that, she also starred in Bush Christmas, a, a 1983 <laughs> film about a missing racehorse. I've never even heard of that. Is it Australian? Yeah. I mean, um, I know that Wolf got to Australia regularly, so. 
yes, yes. It, she seemed like she was born there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it really it really feels like that. But all of this, I just want to say, is incredibly impressive considering that she died in 1941. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I think we should all just sit with that a little bit. But no, the real reason that I wanted to read this was because reading Virginia Woolf helps you become the most depressed that you can <laughs> oh, yeah. be. Yeah. 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 So huge thanks to Virginia Woolf for allowing me to be my best self and for doing that I Love Lucy movie that I'm hearing so much about. Can't wait to watch. <laughs> With the lady who has no facial expressions playing the lady who has all of them. Yeah, it's Virginia Woolf. Yeah. I, I On the subject of Woolf films, I did say, was it, it was Tilda Swindon who was in uh, uh, Orlando, right? And it's, it's perfect. Not because yeah. of that's what Vita was like, but because- she has that wonderful, like, genderless quality. Yeah. I, no, I would be super down for seeing that now. I saw it when I was, like, 10, and I, <laughs> I didn't- too, That's weird. That's well, no, because that, I think I've told you guys about this before. Uh, like, this, I, I read with the E.M. Forrester episode, I, I mentioned this, that, uh, like, I watched A Room with a View with my parents when I was, like, <gasps> wait, and I, and I was, like, you know, for years and years, I hated Forrester. It's like, yeah, dude, because you watch that when you're six. You're not really in a headspace <laughs> to get it. <laughs> I, I, sort of, I need to revisit both uh, the novel and, and the, that film. <laughs> I haven't seen it in a long, long time. I read the novel more recently, but it's like Tilda Swinton is perfect in everything. No, yeah, I mean, I just magical. Like, yeah, now as a grown ass 40 year old adult, I'm like, that sounds like a great movie. But like 10 year old me did not get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, because you should have been watching the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, exactly. right. Yeah. Like, oh, weirdly, like all gender character, like passing through all the stream of consciousness. Like, no. Yeah, I think I think it was the stream of consciousness thing that I was like, I wait, what is happening? Where's my linear narrative? I, I'm like, 10. Where's Don? <laughs> where's Don? Where's Donatello? Where's my snack, my nap, and my <laughs> linear narrative? Where's Splitter and, and peanut butter and anchovy pizza? Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <sighs> but uh, more on uh, Australian ginger Virginia Woolf. <laughs> we are going to be talking today about gender in a very expansive way. The sort of limits of Woolf's critique, class politics, of course, and, and this book's relationship to temporality. Summary-wise, I stop me if this is weird. Don't, this is going to be weird. But Mrs. Dalloway is another novel that covers one day. It has this in common with Ulysses. And it has two major characters and then a bunch of other more minor characters who are various levels of annoying between six and ten, I think. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think Retzia is very annoying. But I also think Peter Walsh is pretty annoying yeah i find elizabeth not particularly annoying yeah well she doesn't really say enough to be annoying that's true yeah just get some thinky thoughts i give retia a pass but we can we can because of context (laughs) yes sally Sutton seems cool i like sally i mean if only because she seems like a like a hottie yeah 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 and yeah i mean just generally all around fun not uh you know she does seem fun not to in her own head as virtually every other character in this novel is. <laughs> it's the whole point of the novel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Comes back and just screams about her large sons. Yeah. That's true. She yeah, has five, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 Five. Yeah. I have five big boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's the book is very impressionistic, very typical of high modernism. Like you could teach just this Ulysses Sound in the Fury and their eyes were watching God, and you could be like, that was it. That's modernism. Move on. 
not really, but <laughs> well, I'm gonna do that though. I mean, you you could kind of do it anyway. You could kind of do it that way, but then like, of course, me and my love of minor literature it would be like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I won't do that. And. It's very modernism. I'm going to skip a bunch, though, when I do the summary and focus in more detail on a couple of the the super famous scenes. So in the first, it doesn't have chapters. It's just sort of one sentence. And in the first part, Clarissa Dalloway is in the shops in London, and she's she's buying stuff for the party she's holding that night. The first line of the novel is, Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. And one of the things we learn from Merve's intro is that that line was tweaked a bunch, which is another one of those things I love reading about a novel that I adore. I don't know. I like learning about the shit that got tweaked, you know? Yeah, the, the mirror universe Virginia Woolf. Mm. Yeah, Exactly. And not, it didn't emerge perfect, you know? It was just like, no, this had to be, like, fucked with a lot. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she is, she's in the shop. She's going to hold this party that night. She has all these series of reflections about her ex on the, st- the state of the post-war world. She's thinking about objects. She's thinking about gloves and flowers and about her daughter Elizabeth. And then there's this first major super famous scene is the appearance of an airplane in the sky Yes. It seems that everyone played centric narrative first time on the show. (laughs) Plain room room, room. for you could this you could say this is a plain novel. I mean it'd be a weird thing to say, but it could be true. It's an airplane. Why haven't we read Strangers on a Train? We we've been trying, I think. Yeah, that's true. Sorry. So she there's this it's not really Clarissa. It falls into the sort of common consciousness, Tristan, that you were talking Mm. about. Like everyone on the street in London seems to stop to look at it and reflect on it. You know, this is barely post-war. So the appearance of an airplane in Britain is kind of fucking terrifying, actually. Yeah. Well, and I, I, sorry, I, you know, I have thoughts on this, but like, yes. they're, I, I think they're real thoughts and, and not just airplane go room. But like, <laughs> I mean, there's, so there's a couple things here. One, Megan, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it was not nearly the scale of the devastation of the Blitz, um, you know, but it was still, yeah. I mean, like seven years earlier, if you saw an airplane in London, it was German dude throwing a grenade yeah. at you, right? But like, what's also wild to me about this whole moment is that like, if you went back 15 or 20 years, there was no such fucking thing as an airplane. As an airplane, right? yeah. It, there's a proliferation of new technology in the first half of the 20th century that I think, I mean, the, there's no denying how central the internet has been, but it's just, to go from a world in which you're riding around on fucking horses to <laughs> we have sky machines in the space of yeah. a couple of decades is like bewildering. And, and I actually think that bewilderment, in addition to the war stuff, is kind of central to the effect that this magical skywriting device that also is like a threatening death machine is kind of created there yeah i think that's totally (laughs) right i mean and this is the like i don't want to we'll talk about this at some point but like the i the notion that like consciousness itself changes in some virginia wool says that the world itself changed in 1914 yeah yeah and on or about June some June of nineteen fourteen. She's remarkably specific because it's her. But yeah, no, you're right. Like the idea that it wouldn't have even existed. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. You have like trains and horses. Yeah, exactly. And no, boats to- that go blub blub or whatever boats go. Yeah. Totally, totally, and the and the other uh, the other thing to note about and Megan, you allude that this it, we seemed like we're in Clarissa's consciousness. The weird thing is, there's all this like great and beautiful stuff about the sky writing, and then the next section, Clarissa's like, "What are they looking at?" Because she hasn't watched like this is like yeah. we've moved from her mind into this crowd, and she's not even present anymore, and we don't even really notice that that's happened until we're like, "Oh right, this wasn't Clarissa we were looking at." Right. And that's, she slips between those voices in a way that's actually difficult to track. It takes me a couple readings until I was like, I I have like a bunch of my page flags are just like POV swap. This time I read, I was like, I'm sure glad that 2018 me put those notes in there. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't help that, that Hugh and Peter are like, the same why dude. have both? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, shit, barely have why Richard, but yeah. <laughs> not really, but yeah. two pieces of shit psychoanalysts. We did, did we need to? Another thing I'll note is that Wolf really puts a lot of emphasis on sound. So this seems to be something that sort of like inaugurates shifts in POV2 is here and then later it'll be the sound of the ambulance. And that seems to be something that sort of tips off a change. Yeah, so this goes from Clarissa to the sort of common they point of view, and then to Septimus Smith, who's our other central character. He's a veteran who is suffering from severe shell shock with his absolute dits wife, Lucrezia. Katie and I have different opinions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We don't actually get much of him in this part, but we do learn that he's being treated for his shell shock by a Dr. Holmes, and that he has been experiencing... And and we we get some of his auditory and visual hallucinations. Yeah, and something that um, that Merve's edition really uh, underscored too, which I I mean I guess I had known was that like yes, like shell shock is largely P- what you know what we would now diagnose as PTSD, but it was like highly class inflected. If you were an officer and had it, you were a depressive or like had neurasthenia. If you were a working class soldier who had it, it was shell shock and you needed to pull yourself together and you had it yeah. because you didn't have the fortitude the uh, the aristocracy who were leading the combat had. The invention of the term, there's, there's got, there is an earlier one and now I can't remember what it's called. And then there's the sort of, what do they call it after Vietnam? Oh, good question. Battle fatigue? There's a different was, word. Viet- oh, was battle fatigue the Vietnam one or was that the World War II one? That was I World War II. That, yeah. There is one after Vietnam, and then it's PTSD. Yeah. What yeah. is it? Uh, that's, that's is also around the time you're starting to get a lot of preoccupation with the idea of nervousness. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And and nerves in general, it, which makes sense because you can you you could know more about those things now and you like could really know more. It's more than what you more than zapping uh like limbs that came off of civil war soldiers you could yeah. you could understand it enough to make person classifiable as nervous right and it's it's pre, it's actually pre-freud but it's like freud sort of gives particular weight to this anyway i'll figure it out what the word is cuz it is like a changing term but the concepts have a certain degree of continuity maybe <laughs> but so clarissa returns home and then again, she has all these reflections about like her other, let's call her her friend slash ex, Sally Seaton. I don't know. They're a pair. 
they're in love with each other. I'm not quite sure exactly how to word it. And then Clarissa's also thinking about her age and her other relationships. Another sort of moment that I always call my students' attention to is her seeing her face in the mirror. And this is another very sort of wolf moment where she says, like, how many million times she had seen her face. I had to keep reminding myself when we were in the novels present that these characters are supposed to be more than 50 years old. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. I mean, and there's a lot of, you know, commentary on how like vigorous Clarissa is. Yes. Well, all the, with the with the with the one caveat that she had uh, the in the 1819 influenza uh, night eighteen eight nineteen eighteen eighteen nine, you know the, the fucking post World War One <laughs> seventeen and eighteen yes yeah. yeah um and and that so that that like weakened her heart in some way but no there's but because like we're sliding so frequently back to the earlier time when they were all you know in their late teens early twenties that you tend to for, forget this isn't I mean this is people who like at that period are kind of even past middle age to a degree like this is you know this is very much at this moment kind of on the other side of a huge body of life experiences and it just the temporality of it and and also i guess just the even the function of what memory does i mean i feel like the age is important but it, there's also like a like a timelessness or some or like an out being a character being out of time or something mm. that that's produced there that it was just it, it, but i like every time we were in the present i was like okay now like this is like a 50 year old person standing in front of the mirror you know well these narratives of things like reflection and regret, I think to a certain reader at a certain time would feel like a 50-year-old person. But now it feels like a character of any age could be as reflective, right? Yeah, like yeah, on yeah, a, yeah. On a yeah. sort of like life narrative. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it, part of it is that when they reflect, the affect is not what you expect. There's not the melancholy that, right. you'd ex- that, you, that you sort of want there. Richard Dalloway describes himself as being in the prime of life. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think yeah. that part of it is like, it's so uh, it's so fraught with respect to nostalgia, right? Yeah. Like, it's actually anti-nostalgic for me, even though it's like, well, before there was this catastrophic war. So yeah. it is dealing with something that feels entirely different, but it's not the same as like, when I was young and life was gorgeous, because she's just so imperfect and fractured. Yeah, you know, right. I know I like that the anti nostalgia idea because I and I agree. It's it's more. It's like it's not. I mean, you are you're like you're shaped in the past by some fairly kind of like traumatic ways, but it's not. You're also like you're perpetually kind of living there as well in some way. But Megan, it's something you. Put, I mean, like I do wonder if the whole lost generation thing, the fact that like. 20-year-olds had just gone off to die by the millions suddenly means that if you if you escaped that, like you have some different kind of relationship to mm-hmm. the social space than may have been true if there was this generation that you basically killed <laughs> that was behind right. you, you know? And killed and also a bunch of them came back, and that is no less disturbing or traumatic, yeah. right? Yeah, no, no, like Septimus, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's like a trauma that that escapes your borders that then sort of it just it's the obviously England has its own sort of weird relationship but but the borders being shifting with respect yeah. to people leaving and then returning or not returning is yeah. a, a mindfuck it's a huge mindfuck and I'll I'll stop after this but that sort of dovetailing with the Dalloways and all their rich friends reflecting on their own past 
they don't bring anything with them. Yeah. They look back at stuff and say, I would do exactly the same thing. They relive. They don't relitigate or regret or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting, right? Because like even the moments where it should be regret, right? Like Peter Waddle saying like he should have married her is not framed effectively regretfully. I know that seems like a weird way to say it. It's like he says that, but you don't really get it from his other interiority reflections no and he's interested in somebody else it's a different kind of looking back on the they're oddly baggageless yeah that's interesting i mean they're they're right they're like bringing the narrative but they're not it's just a very different kind of reflection yeah yeah and so the mirror thing the reason i point to it for my students is that it's another one of these condensed sort of moments she's thinking about her own self-absorption, the possibility of what the mirror image means, and then also this thing that Wolf is so good at, which is like the defamiliarization from the self. And that's very much in sort of this question about the changes to consciousness that accompany psychoanalysis and then like second wave psychology, because that you would be unfamiliar to yourself in some way is a pretty innovative yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, it's like I don't know. Like, there, there definitely was a recognition of that at earlier moments. But I'm thinking, like, the the whole epistolary novel, right, where it's like that that fir- that unmediated first person really gets at the truth. And this is, I mean, you know, just so very different. There's just I don't know. There's not there's not like a conscious brain point of purchase where you can draw all that together and have it be coherent and make sense and linear. Right? Oh no! Even time for at least Bergson is like qualitative, right? Like it's yeah. not empirical. Yeah, for sure. Like all of the things that we thought of as being constants aren't. Yeah, and there's no real or one version of events when right. you have minds like this. Right. So you never, but you never also get the sort of like what I think of as the pleasure of. Um, of something like Rashomon, because you don't get the jouissance of like, oh, this is the most reliable version. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Right? Clue is my reference for this. <laughs> uh, well, show. it could also be, what was the Ridley Scott movie that just came out? The Last <laughs> Duel. Was this Does the one that, that he, too. Was this the one that he was super mad about? Was he mad about it? I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. He was like, like Matt Damon and Adam Driver. Okay. It's not very good. I can't recommend it. (laughs) So skip that one. And I think it's like two and a half hours long, which is inappropriate. (laughs) No. At two hours and five minutes, and then you better earn that shit. So after this reflection, Peter Walsh shows up sort of surprisingly, and, and then she's reflecting on all these other romantic entanglements with Richard, her husband, and with Peter, and with Sally. And then we move through a bunch of other people's reflections on Clarissa and and on Septimus. Peter Walsh, Septimus's wife, Lucrezia. From her point of view, we learn more about his wartime service and her youth, which actually seems fun to me. And at some point, her point of view starts to merge into Septimus's. This is actually not an easily demarcated moment. Like, I made the note and then I had to move my post-it, which I know is like <laughs> a dumb criterion, but it's like, no, actually, that's kind of interesting. And we learn that this treatment by this like repulsive Dr. Holmes says he's in a funk and didn't one owe perhaps a duty to one's wife? Wouldn't it be better to do something instead of lying in bed? <laughs> like, yeah, we would all like to not just lie in bed all day. It's not like, oh, yeah. that sounds great. 
Yeah. Oh, Rob- you should pull yourself up by the bootstraps that got blown off in the war. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Rub, rub some dirt on your broken psyche. And, you know, yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah. Just a little Vicks Vapo rub on your yeah. on your damaged consciousness. Elbow grease and spit. That'll yeah. do it. I would. I would make a, a a mercury joke here, although this is like 1920s. We're at the at the moment where suddenly they thought radium and radioactivity was oh, a good yeah. cure. So how about you have some radium infused water to get the, get the you know? And we're still ten years back. short of antibiotics, it's so it's like, yeah. come on, dudes, you're yeah. almost there. Yeah, 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 yeah. They got they got anesthesia, but they don't quite know what to do with it yet. You know, right? And people are still like dying of appendicitis. But okay, so then there's more of these sort of quick reflections. Um, Septimus's other doctor is this guy, Sir William Bradshaw, and yeah, fuck him. Then the Dalloway's friend, Hugh Whitbread, Clarissa's husband, Richard. Um, <laughs> I love Hugh Whitbread. He's such a dumbass. He's, he's just such like a, a dumbass, man. Why are you there? Why are you, you in this book? Yeah. Get out of the book, you. Yeah. He's like I as I wrote him, I was picturing Boris Johnson, although decidedly mm-hmm. dumber, which is remarkable, right? <laughs> I know? was thinking he was he strikes me as less like craven or something. Yeah, right. There's there's like dumber but more affable or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. There's like he is definitely dumber, but in a way that you're like, oh Hugh. Yeah. yeah. Um and then Clarissa's husband, Richard, who's a conservative member of parliament right i think yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. they're tories which it's a little bit surprised me that she made them tories because to me they could have easily been liberal party members um and this is right at the moment of david lloyd george's last liberal government which was the last liberal government before labor completely right. pushed their fucking useless assholes like into <laughs> oblivion and, and it, but there's just there's a certain uh well there's just like oh yeah social problems are the cause of this that feels a little bit more like n- n- that the book is like voicing as a way of like making fun of the superficiality of that that just felt a little bit more liberal to me than fucking Tory like arch defenders, you know, the aristocracy. I don't, and I don't know what to make of that. Like, I don't know if like my take on political parties this moment is just a little facile, or if there was like some particular reason why Wolf wanted to flag them as the conservative party and not the waiting liberal establishment or something like that. I mean, my only thought is not actually very smart at all, which is like, I think it's intended to be a reactionary gesture against her radical youth. Yeah. Yeah. Th- yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that, fe- that, yeah, that feels right. But that's a novelly reason, not a historicist reason. So it's yeah. a little bit like imprecise. Yeah. Yeah. But that's fine. Right. So, so, so a bit from Richard. And then, but for me, his point of view is actually quite interesting. Like, we know, although he's not a character that I feel much attachment to, we know that he really loves, he genuinely loves Clarissa, but that his access to her is really limited. We as readers don't find her hard to read because it's a novel and that's what it's for. But he does, and I think everybody else does too, that there's this kind of obsession with her being sort of unreadable or unavailable in some way. And that's part of the object of this text, right? Is to think about someone being defamiliarized from those around her and also from herself to a certain degree. And this is why, and this again, is like repeating what Merve says, which is that this is a really hard book with respect to like bracketing off novelistic characters from people because we're so, it's so much about the inner life. Yeah, for sure. So, 
and then we have this um, a tiny moment of her daughter Elizabeth's point of view, and then we return to Septimus, and he and Retzia are doing this like awkward small talk in their sitting room, and then Doctor Holmes shows up, which we expect, and he's there to have Septimus committed again, I think, which we expect, and then Holmes arrives at the door to the sitting room, and then I just have to read this. Septimus says, sort of, he would wait until the very last moment. He did not want to die. Life was good. The sun, hot. Only human beings. What did they want? Coming down the staircase opposite an old man, opposite, an old man stopped and stared at him. Holmes was at the door. I'll give it you, he cried, and flung himself vigorously, violently down onto Mrs. Fulmer's area railings. The coward, cried Dr. Holmes. So it's like, Besides vigorously, violently, it's under-narrated, his suicide. Mm-hmm. So under-narrated. In that point, right? Then it gets yeah. like sufficiently narrated later, sort of. But it's utterly under. You could totally miss it if you were yes. reading carefully. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also that, that idea that he did not want to die. Life was good. This idea that, which is, I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, I you know want to put the author and not you know separate the author from the work here. But I mean, I think it's it's hard to read this without thinking of what Wolf's own suicide, um, what fifteen years later, sixteen something like that. Mm-hmm. But like that, he did not want to die. Life was good, and I think this is a point that that Mervay makes a lot in the notes that it's his attachment to life like bigger like other people's kind of love of yeah. life the idea of that needing some sort of sacrifice is something like driving this which is just it's i mean i it's hard for me to sort of like wrap my head around like what exactly the novel is getting at that other than that it's very fascinating and troubling i think at the same time and not quite what i mean because i the, the way of reading this i mean this is a poor guy who's just like hounded by his own illness and by the expectations of others and he just he needs a way out but that's not like how that moment's narrated it's it's mm-hmm. it's doing right. some other kind of conceptual work which is again yeah striking also troubling and kind of confounding to me and of course that people are only a problem to him right yes. like never a comfort yeah. never something yeah. better never affection that it's only like to be among other people is actually the worst thing imaginable yeah 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 yeah, yeah. because Maggie, yeah it's exactly that it's that he's not he's not trying to escape his mind he is trying to escape other people and mm-hmm. their their relentless demands yeah 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 and because every and I, I don't actually think that there's a version of this novel where people talk to him in a way that helps. They don't. They talk to him in the most disgusting ways possible. But I think that that's only emphasizes this. I don't think you could write this book and he would not kill himself. No. And well, because I mean, the, uh, both uh, Holmes and Bradshaw, their theories of like what's happened, like what the uh, source of the illness are radically different. And you get the sense that Bradshaw is like a little bit more with modern psychology, but he's just as oppressive as a figure as Holmes is. Totally, I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe probably even more so because I think it's Bradshaw that kind of moves to have him committed, right? Where, where Holmes mm-hmm. is like, oh, rub some dirt on it and you'll be fine. And Bradshaw, of course, is like super, super famous. This is this is a big thing where it's like it's another sound cue when we hear his car coming earlier mm-hmm. in the novel, yeah. and the it's sort of anticipation. But it's clear that this wouldn't have helped. And then we get this point of view shift, as I said, like again, this is by virtue of sound from Septimus, kind of sort of to Peter Walsh, who hears the ambulance coming for Septimus's body, 
then we get this like tiny little moment of commentary from Clarissa's, I don't know, what do I say? Staff? Yeah. Yeah. Workers, the workers in her home. Domestic workers. Domestic workers, yeah. Yeah. Which is like actually kind of fun. But when we return to Clarissa's interiority, she's wandering around her own party and she says it's too much of an effort because it was too much like being just anybody standing there. Anybody could do it. This is this is another Clarissa Septimus continuity where it's like, ugh, other people are just gross or completely unavailable. Yeah. Also, the prime minister is there. Like, why? What? <laughs> yeah, Excuse yeah. me? Who invited there, him? There's Lady <laughs> Bruton, I think. Like, there's some yeah. kind of weird machinations happening there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Lady Bruton, who's uh, who basically wants to uh, sort of pop, like her, her big sort of hobby horse is to populate Canada with white people because yep. she's very concerned about like sort she's of concerned like- concerned about white people. Quite racist. Yeah. And that Richard has been drafted to sort of help her in this. And he thinks it's ridiculous, but he's also going along with it because yeah. he's also a fucking racist, useless asshole, you know. Uh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. <laughs> but, Members uh, of parliament, surely not. Yeah. But you're right. Like this is I mean, yeah, this is like right down the street from like Ted Downing Street. Like this this is mm-hmm. a very kind of politically connected and influential couple, which I mean, you know you're reading the perspective of like kind of the uh, the upper bourgeoisie or like the you know, even the aristocracy. But it's just like there's mo it's like, oh right, her husband works for the fucking prime minister, you know, like he's yeah. he's like in the cabinet or close to it. It's just again, it's I think it's it's the changes in perspectives and the um what information the novel does or doesn't sort of like privilege as a matter of kind of like the 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 life of the mind that is quite different from the sort of like historical structure around this or something like that. Yeah, squaring those two things is actually quite interesting. Sort yeah. of, I don't talk about this in a minute, but the question of like what happened as a historiographical fact, and then the, the mental life of yeah. these characters is a hard thing to wrestle with. And then, so we're getting close to the end, and so we get all this flurry of commentary on Clarissa from secondary characters, and William Bradshaw is there, and Clarissa says she did not know what it was about Sir William, what exactly she disliked, which, you know, we appreciate as readers. So, uh, and then Clarissa he- overhears Bradshaw tell Richard about Septimus's death. And then her meditation on this is very close to the end. She says, what business had the Bradshaws to talk of death at her party? A young man had killed himself and they talked of it at her party. The Bradshaws talked of death. He had killed himself, but how? Always her body went through it first when she was told suddenly of an accident. Her dress flamed, her body burnt. He had thrown himself from a window. Up had flashed the ground. Through him, blundering, bruising, went the rusty spikes. There he lay with a thud, thud, thud in his brain, and then a suffocation of blackness. So she saw it. But why had he done it? And the Bradshaws talked of it at her party. So this is like amazing and crazy that she has, she like feels it, right? There's a sensorial overlap between the two of them yeah it almost to me separates them further because she's at a party and she's feeling some kind of a it's a it's a physical response but it isn't she imagines it to be i think more than it is or something yeah i don't and i know she's not directly imagining it but it does somehow, to me, offend my sensibilities that she thinks she's with him. Yeah. 
And I think for me, it's that sentence that's like, her body went through it first is what makes me feel like she's in it in some way. I agree with you. I think that that's, there's there's something gross with like, uh, how dare he bring that up at her party? But it's also like, she and Septimus have this sort of like umbilical tie. Yeah. Yeah, the the day, even just the structure of the day, like those two, their their perspectives, even though they almost never, like they never directly meet, and they only sort of like cross. They are, yeah, it's it is totally like a this kind of umbilical connection. I have to say, and and I and I, I do, I mean, I do think that like the novel is quite critical of Clarissa's class. It is to some degree a critique of the the, the British ruling elite. But I mean, and this isn't at all a knock on the novel. I mean, I think is what makes it so compelling. I've been thinking about this, you know, ever since I finished it a, a week ago. I find Clarissa kind of inscrutable as a character, despite how much time we spend in her psyche. I mean, and, and partially of this is driven is that we move into other people's psyche. Like we get Peter Walsh kind of like giving us this also not really accurate because I mean, it's it's so bound up in his own sort of like preoccupations and desires. Okay. I mean, I guess one read on her is that, you know, yeah, I mean, she is very skeptical about the people she surrounds herself to. And I mean, kind of knows that they suck in a lot of ways. And her response is like, well, at the end of the day, I'm just I'm going to go through the motions and I'm going to have mm-hmm. a party because that's what you do. That in some ways is at odds with Peter's description of like there you where she like, according to him, went in this very kind of conservative kind of direction, like was like so bound up in like her own kind of like class and and and, and the expectations of it that that short circuited whatever they they had. But at the same time, like, again, that's his own kind of self-serving narrative that doesn't really work. So I just yeah, I don't I don't know what to make of her, frankly. That makes sense to me. Everything you said is 100% true. And there's also this other thing happening at the same time with all this stuff. She's realizing softly that people suck and all the rest of it and the parties are silly and whatever else. But she also says, I have these parties. No one can understand why I have these. I have these because I love being alive. And when I die, I'll look back and know that I loved every instant of being alive. And that's why I had these parties. They're like existential shitty gatherings also. And that that does bring her back to some things that were said, like that we got out of Septimus too, right? Mm -hmm. That it's it's like, it's the excess of like his feeling for life that ultimately – you know, creates this sort of crisis. And, and I, Megan, correct me if I'm wrong, but, I, and I think I got this also from the, the edition we read, but that, uh, like in early kind of notes of this, Clarissa was also maybe going to die or was going to commit suicide. But then oh, there was only one character okay. that was broken up essentially into the two. Oh, okay. Okay. That's, inter- that's really interesting. So, so for Septimus, cool. it ends ultimately in death, but for Clarissa, it ends in this weird kind of living, like unsatisfied slash satisfied living on or something like that. At least for me, that attachment to life is to some, is like very much class embedded, Yeah, but it's also just continual failure of expectations. Again, I know that it's sort of dorky to return to like, oh, she's looking in the mirror. But I do think it tells us something important about like, she doesn't actually do very well, even knowing things about herself. She's like, I yeah. love parties. And then she shows up and she's like, this is dumb. Yeah, this sucks. Like, I love them so much. I fucking hate them. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. And that I love them so much. I throw them even though I hate them. Yeah. And that like unavailable, your own, un- that you might be mostly unknowable to yourself is like part of the craziness here and part of the reason that they might be broken up into two. 
that like they mm. know shit about each other across this book in kind of spooky ways. Right. Yeah. 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 They yeah, share right. pieces yeah. of their inner lives. They do. Yeah. And which gets to that. Yeah. Like the, the, the psyche is communal that like we were talking about earlier, which is, uh, fa- I mean, fascinating, like really fascinating. And that's why you kind of have to read this book a bunch. Like not, I, I know that that's like a hokey thing to say, but there's, there's a benefit. It, it actually is like a lot of Melville for me that way. Yeah, like it, it's like, I'm, I'm teaching Tristram Shandy this term and I'm rereading it for, I guess this is the fourth time. And I'm like, I'm, I just read the first volume and I found like 10 things that I had never noticed before. I mean, there's, there's definitely works of literature where that move i mean it is i agree it's like it feels like this obnoxious thing to say but it's it's true it's just flat out true you i do. also just think like some books respond to that well and yeah. some are like i could go the rest of my life without reading horatio elger and i would still remember what happened and <laughs> yeah, it would be a yeah, perfectly yeah. legitimate exactly reading. yeah yeah i've you know uh, but i've read invisible man probably eight times and i still read it and i'm like holy fucking shit <laughs> yeah is yeah. the difference that one is good and one is not <laughs> It is possible that that is the difference. Is that the distinction that we are ruminating over? Yeah. Well, there are good books, though, that don't require quite so much, like, ponderousness. No, I know. It's just funny to think, like, I like to read the good ones twice and the bad ones I do once. But no, I like to read the bad ones six times. (laughs) You like some – well, you – again, it's like, do you like them or do you have a certain intellectual fascination with them? Yeah. Yeah. So after this – this moment like the last few pages are Clarissa's friends and family being obsessed with her like why is she just what is her what are her things thinking about you know how bad she is at being a person and then the last couple paragraphs are totally fucking weird because there are these like crossings of a like attachment or love or something like so richard notices their daughter elizabeth and he's like oh i hadn't even noticed it was her because she looks so pretty and then peter walsh has the last words. He says, what is it that fills me with extraordinary excitement? It is Clarissa, he said, for there she was. Why he gets the last word? That's nutty. Yeah. <laughs> it is yeah. nutty. Yeah. Okay, so context-wise, I'm doing sort of two things. The first is going to be basically stolen from Mervé's intro, and then the second is a little more goopy. So with that. respect to Wolf, she, you know, very obviously was like one of the most important modernist British writers and someone I think we can safely consider like a dominant top 10 figures in the study of the novel. I think that that's fair with Austin and Stern and others. She was a member of the Bloomsbury group, which we mentioned Clive Bell, Roger Fry, Keynes. What? (laughs) She and her husband also founded Hogarth press, which we mentioned it was Freud's British publisher. Um, They did meet. He came to tea at their house once. Yeah, that's nice. Um, he he died like it was right during the um very lead up. It was like nineteen thirty eight, like right in the lead up to the war. So he was a refugee essentially, mm-hmm, right? Um, and he was very he was a very old man. And uh, she wrote Mrs. Dalloway in actually different versions. Really early version is a short story, and then she wrestled with it a lot, and then she edited it in a way that's like. She wrote it longhand and then she typed it up and she edited it as she typed, which is actually, I feel like I do the opposite. Like when I write something, I type it. And then when I print it out, I'm a better editor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like she's actually does something that I feel like, oh, I 
could see why that would work so well. It's a short book. It's like 200 pages. Almost unskimmable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's no, there's no way. There's, there's absolutely no skimming. There's no way. And again, I got... I did a little better this time reading more quickly because I had all these page notes that were like, here's this shift. Here's what happens here. (laughs) And one of the most famous dynamics of the novel is this tie between Clarissa and Septimus, who used to be in early versions, one character, his suicidal ideation, these long descriptions of interiority. They both have these sort of like disaffections with the people they're married to but not in not in ways that are like all that coherent nothing is coherent in this book that was the wrong word and then their perspectives continue to overlap and again she does this sensorially a lot so it's like what she didn't like about bradshaw was his smell or so it's like it's affective or or textured and not narrativized and this is like i owe a lot to my colleague Annie Williams for this stuff. She's really smart about this book. People also note that there's, I don't know, there's something, <laughs> this book talks about class. Is it good on class? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> it, it sure is, yeah. It's, and, yeah. It. it's not It's not bad on class, but probably no. not great, great either. You know? <laughs> well, and it certainly doesn't do, It's. it's not, you know, there are plenty of books that are bad and amazing yes. and also talk about class. And there are plenty of books that are amazing books that are good on class. So it's not like, yeah, we're not asking for something crazy. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, you you don't have like, and you don't, everyone does not have to do the last hundred pages of Native Son. That's not no. what we're asking for. <laughs> well, that's not also like very good, but uh, <laughs> there are like amazing, you know, movies and works of literature that are like about yeah. class yeah fucking no, I, bartleby yeah yes no totally though i have to once again and say that like wright knows that he is not oh, he knows what he's doing right. he's like fuck you asshole you know oh 100 yeah. richard wright always knows when he's being a big jerk oh yeah yeah speaking of people who i would guess were no fun <laughs> um, yes. he seems like history's most awkward man and then the other point I want to make, and this is like probably too much me time, but it's like Bart, it's Roland Bart, who already is my fave, and he's talking about Madame Bovary. So I'm I'm like already ass deep in this. And <laughs> this is his thing where Bart talks about the reality effect, which is like, it's not realist, but it's the reality effect in that it asks the question of like, how is the notion of what happened represented through the constructedness of language and the idea of the text and that is relevant for me in thinking about wolf because this question of like what happened is is not actually it's there right it's there it has this like his his importance but it's the reflectiveness the constructedness of language the the degree to which something is or is not representable through these vectors of connotation or denotation that are important and in this i'm just i'm only reading a tiny bit here because i love bart but he's these are long sentences he says the pure and simple representation of the real the naked relation of what is or has been appears as a resistance to meaning this resistance confirms the great mythic opposition of the true to life the lifelike and the intelligible 
It suffices to recall that in the ideology of our time, obsessive reference to the concrete in what is rhetorically demanded of the human sciences, of literature, of behavior, is always brandished like a weapon against meaning, as if, by some statutory exclusion, what is alive cannot not signify, and vice versa. So this question of like representability, I think is really important. Again, he's talking about Flaubert because if you, you know, Flaubert is so obsessed with describing places or rooms or objects. He has all these, you know, he's he's always talking about her needlework or something. And it's like, those representations feel like objects in the world, but it's their interpretability that actually causes us to reflect on consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's not the entirety of what's happening here, but it's part of it. And he's not opposed to realism, realist fictions of the 19th century, but I th- but we know that Wolf is. Yeah. And I suspect part of that is her like, go ahead and say what happened. It's not that. It's the way that we perceive it. You know, I mean, I, I do actually think there's a direct line here to the kind of political critique that we get probably through uh, Sir William Bradshaw, right? This hyper-rational man of empire, right? That that realist impulse in, I mean, the 18th century too, although I think it's a little bit more, you know, fractious than, than in the 19th century. Realism of the 19th century novel absolutely was a sort of structure of empire and a structure mm-hmm. of like producing the kind of settled order that is politically very suffocating, obviously, you know, the idea of that kind of interpretability being more so than the concretization. I mean, I do like whatever you think the politics of this novel are. And I I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, there at least opens a space for like kind of critique, both about like what the psyche means, but also about the social structures in which the psyche is embedded. Oh, yeah. And the sort of like, I don't mean made upness of the psyche, but I think that whether she wants us to or not, this book helps me think a lot about the historical constructedness and the historical contingency of the psyche. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, the con- yeah, the contingency of the psyche in general. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. it's not that, you know, Freud tells us a story of how we work. It's that he actually rearranges how we work. <laughs> That's absolutely, absolutely true. And like, too bad we don't actually have Dr. Freud here. Oh, it makes me so well, sad. We- <laughs> I know I know. What we have are these other shitty doctors who are trying to convince people to be alive to want to be alive by referring to these pleasures and they're like but we don't have that shit. We're not rich like you. So why right. do we so why do we live? Yeah. Right. What are what are our minds in our lives? What do we do? And it's like a directly posed question in this novel which I think is really cool. Yeah. Basically. And I think, you know, Tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm making the jump awkwardly. I think that I don't actually know how to answer this question, but like for me, Clarissa's gender is is wacky and actually Septimus's is too, in ways that make us rethink narrative voices as hypergendered. Mm-hmm. Right? This isn't a feminized wolf, does not write like a lady. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, don't mean that in any way other than the constructedness of a feminized. Yeah authorial voice i also i don't it's weird because i that is that was not my thought at any point reading this that there's that you've you felt no reflection on gender reading it no i did not feel like oh wolf does not write like a woman but that isn't that meaning you felt like she didn't write an in gender no i do feel like there were so so overall i would say yes 
that the quality of the work as a whole is maybe androgynous or something. But there are all of these moments about uh, women's inner lives that we don't get about men. And I know that's a content point, not a style point, but I think it's sort of important mm. because what the content of what you can get in thought she can sort of go deeper so it's more mysterious in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Like Clarissa's little impulses to laugh or to scream after everybody, don't forget my party. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All this stuff, all these little, all of these little details we do get for her and we get for women and we don't get them for men. So, I mean- I don't know. Like I'm, I'm about to do both sides here. Uh, like, because, <laughs> I mean, I think that Katie and I are already. Th- yeah. There's a continuity here. It's just like we're yeah. wrestling with it. Anyway, go both sides. Us. Yeah. No. Well, no. I mean, <laughs> I do think that like the way that the novel moves between points of view so fluidly, just like it structurally. Leave the content aside. There's not a marked difference to me between this is Peter Walsh thinking about the past, this is Clarissa thinking about the past. I mean, there is like in the content of it, but we we move between their points of view so in, in a way that I didn't necessarily see like a gendered structure being thought set up around this is a man's thought, this is a woman's thought. But what does Peter Walsh do with this sort of like dissatisfaction of his relationship with Clarissa? He fucks off to India, right? Yeah. Like he, he, go, he <laughs> right, goes yeah. he goes and do, does, does, the, does Empire games. Yeah, does Empire, yeah. like dick swinging Empire games and then cries into his gin and tonic like right yeah. I mean, he's, you know so whereas she stays in the domestic world of the british upper class and like a very rarefied version of that i do think like we move between perspectives in a way that really would break down certain kind of gender structures but i also think like the con- you know that idea like the style over content content right. is probably though still important right like just in like oh i think so yeah what mm-hmm. peter's response is to this moment versus like what the possibility of a clarissa's there are, i mean we didn't talk that much about it but i do think another thing with clarissa and gender is what degree do, do we want to think of her as a queer character she definitely has a queer relationship with sally seaton right like i mean that's oh, for sure yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Does that structure like multiple aspects of her kind of being or is it, you know, thought of as this containable sort of like youthful fling with another woman? Um, I suspect it's probably a little bit more towards the former than the latter. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. she has what we clearly see is this like aching longing for her. Yeah. That she doesn't seem to feel for any of the men who are all except for Septimus. Mostly going around this book being going like, am I horny for that? Am I horny for that? Am I like that? Yeah. (laughs) And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. And and her and like rich, you know her her relationship with Richard, who can't even like must to tell say that he loves her, right? There's this whole moment where jewelry that she hates, oh and God. that's the moment yeah. that I'm like, damn, I always appreciate my husband, and at least he can buy me a fucking gift, you know? Like yeah. he's great, but damn, like is that as <laughs> a high standard. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. He also he lives in mortal terror of it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like I couldn't yes. get her anything because I was too scared. Yes. Uh. Yeah. Richard's own relationship to sort of like heterosexuality is very uh, or just kind of heter- heteronormative marriage structures is is already sort of like um, I don't know. There's some questions around it. You know, there's almost a way in which she goes for Richard rather than Peter because like Richard is a blanker version yep. of upper class dude or in a way that Peter isn't, but that, you know, okay. So maybe if her primary There's sort all of these like, jokes about how she calls him by the wrong name. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. 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 Early yeah, in the novel. Yeah, and then Sally's yeah, like, my name is Dalloway. Like Sally yeah. makes fun of how he responds because yeah. Sally is great. 
Yeah, so I mean, right? In some way, so Sal, like the, at at some point, as they age out, uh, right, of, of sort of youthful kind of queerness, like Sally's no longer going to be a, a uh, an allowable sort of possibility in this world. So she settles on like the yeah. blankest version of like heteronormativity that she can, yeah. but in a way that yes. like then still preserves like Sally as the kind of primary sort of desiring relationship of the novel. Yes. Well, also, it, Richard is the kind of guy who's going to let her sleep in her own bed, like as he mm-hmm. does. Yes, that's the deal. I think. Yeah, is that Peter has to? He has to hug her. He has to cry. He has to give her a little smooch on. She has to give play him a little his, smooch on the cheek. Play yeah. with his There's fucking all knife these, all the time, right? Like, yeah, like he's like, like, got this pocket knife. He keeps playing with like a fucking weirdo, right? Give me a break. He's so un- he's annoying. Oh, yeah, he's annoying. he does so yeah. much business. You know, you're just like, this couldn't be a movie, man. This is just too yeah. too weird. Yeah. I I, just, I mean, wait, I'm sorry. There's so many details we could really like uh, just spend an hour on. But the knife thing with Pete, like anytime he gets oh nervous, God. he starts playing with the knife, which I was like, okay, is this like a masculinist capacity for violence? Is this purely masturbatory? Is this both of these? And also because it's a tiny little pocket knife just sat all around more Bitch than like spinner. threatening. <laughs> I mean, I think fidget spinner. I said fidget spinner. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's also like, because it's Wolf, you're like, yes, the idea is that it's, let it expand into the, you know, this is an overdetermined thing that has multitudes. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing. It also contains (laughs) nothing. It contains contains multitudes and nothing. Right. Because it's your task as a reader to encounter it and be like, here are my series of encounters that are like completely associative. Yeah. I encountered it and was very annoyed. (laughs) I think that is also the correct reading i was just like he's doing some kind of weird i thought it was like a a post empire thing where he's like i gotta keep this in my pocket in case i gotta kill a native and then i like and and then he's just picked up this business of messing with it no that's that's exactly what it is like it's like yeah that's what you think it's gonna be and it's actually the thing he just takes out before he's gonna cry yeah (laughs) yes yeah, yes. for sure. Well, right. I don't know. It, it is, and this again gets to the the sort of like the the novel as as a gendered perspective or not, because I feel like you imagine I don't know Hemingway writing this novel. Oh boy, oh boy, hey, that's a Ooh. good one. Like, I mean, Pete, oh, Pete that's a very different version of Septimus. I can tell. Oh, you oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And and your and Peter would probably not have been like Hemingway's choice for protagonist. But if he had, it would have been. It would have like tried to skew much more to like the kind of purely tragic. Whereas I think that like Bathos around Pete, like he is fucking annoying, right? It's not. Yeah. It's not like oh, he just loved too hard, and you know, women, man, like she had to go for. <laughs> It, it's not that it's like, dude, you fucking suck and like stop yeah. crying over your goddamn knife, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's a wiener. That's why this is the question for me about like whether this novel has gender, or does gender, or thinks about it in a way, or like because it sends you off in so many directions. Mm-hmm. You know, it, <laughs> it could never be marked in the way that like I think that what Jane Austen does with the position of lady novelist that she occupies is really smart. Yes. It's so different from the position that, say, Norman Mailer occupies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who is yeah, also yeah, a maximally yeah. gendered writer. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But this is like really imprecise. Or not that's not right. It's just like its incoherence is what makes it so generative. Yeah. 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 And then you can't square you can't square its circles. 
No, you can't. You can't. You can't play with its knives. <laughs> you oh. sure can't. But you can. We can talk about how wonderful it is with respect to Lawrence Stern because you know you just see his fingerprints all over this book. Totally. Yes. So I, I think like like one final thing to, to just to talk about. And I, I know we're kind of running out of time. But I, this uh, this is obviously a novel that is very critical of the kind the interwar post World War One British establishment. But I do think like I mean there are some moments and again like Merve marks these where the novel like espouses what seems like pretty grossly imperialist kind of idea. But then there's also moments that it's like clearly critical of that. So like I think one moment that that Merve's edition uh, points to. So this is when Richard's gone off to India, right? This is, I think this is on 16 of this edition. And okay. So uh, she, though she had borne about with her for years, like an arrow sticking in her heart, the grief, the anguish, and then the horror of the moment when someone told her at a concert that he had married a woman met on the boat going to India. Never should she forget all that cold, heartless, a prude. He called her never could she understand how he cared, but those Indian women did presumably silly, pretty flimsy nincompoops. And she wasted her pity for, and then we kind of move on from that, but it's like, so this is Clarissa and it's, it's a, just a very kind of breezily sort of orientalizing kind of like racist Mm -hmm. logic around what India means. But is, is the novel giving us that as a way of critiquing like the limitations of Clarissa's own perspective, who it's like largely, I think sympathetic to, or is it, you know, is it just, is that just like part of the tapestry of, of the, the novel's time? I don't know. And, and to be quite frank, like I did on the whole find this novel quite critical and skeptical of that kind of imperial establishment. But I also think there are definitely a few moments we could be like, but, you know, does it like when does it kind of like fully sort of like pull itself into alignment with like the Richard Dalloway's of the world or something like that? Yeah, no, and there are moments where I think it definitely does. The joy of life when you when you have, as uh, as Virginia Woolf puts it in it, like a reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she really thinks that that's good, and there's less there's less of a broader critique of why some people are allowed to have that that life have a have a reserve. Yeah, and the uh, I guess the. The moment that um that we've talked about that I that I sort of got interested in and in relationship to that moment is the uh there's a moment where Clarissa gets confused about whether <laughs> she's like she I think she's confused right about whether it's an Armenian uh or Albanian genocide right. that's yes. happened yeah. and yes. she's like she th- she thinks it's uh, I don't know whether this was in the notes or in the book so that's this is the funny part about this but. It's the the magnitude of it. She's wholly unable to grasp and so dismisses. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's like structurally the novel does that. And it doesn't mean that it's dismissing the no, issue. It's like it's like the, 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 the superficiality of these people's like uh, engagement with anything other than their very sort of narrow world. It's like, yeah, I mean, that to me, I think yeah. is fairly, fairly straightforward kind of critique what the what the, the purchase of that that is for sure well i think that there's like a tension in the sense that they're her sort of like lived reality is narrow but her mental life is enormous right so it's like this is another thing where we kind of go okay well the modern novel 
really cares a lot about the vastness of your inner world. Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So her life, I totally agree, is, like, not just limited, but also you have these moments where she feels really stupid because, like, it's limited and she doesn't care. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's also because the book wants to do something with her inner life, but the bigger world is still there. I'm not quite – I can't quite get to, to, to the point I'm trying to make, but, like, it's doing both things. Yeah. Yeah. And her life doesn't feel limited in the way that, um, shit, um, the Truman Capote, uh, the, the Christmas story, right? Yeah. Like, sure. the, the, this is a, this is a wacky thing to compare it to. <laughs> but yeah. the, the, like, maiden aunt who is sort of totally sequestered and develops a relationship with this child because her world is so small, mm-hmm. it doesn't, her world is not small in that way. Well, it's not forcibly contained, which it feels like the woman in the Capote, it's like forcibly contained. And yes. And I don't want to diminish how forcibly contained that woman is, but also like Clarissa can't. There were uh, about two avenues she could have gone down and she chose to stroll down Richard Lane. And, <laughs> yeah, and yet fair. her... I think she would say that she is not limited, even though, like, she doesn't. She the one of the points the book makes is that she doesn't know what the equator is. If you put a gun right. to her head, she couldn't yeah. tell you what the equator <laughs> yeah, that's is. Right? Yeah. But it doesn't matter to her, and so what constitutes a limit for Wolf and Clarissa and whatever? It's an unanswerable question, I know, but but it's the novel it's, I think complicates it. Well, and it's the the right question that to think about, like. This is wild. So just like hang out with me. Just get on the get on the crazy train. <laughs> this is the same year as Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which yeah, yeah, I yeah, swear to right. God. But her world is a very different one because there's this way that like being upper class has a certain degree of confinement, not in the same forcible way. And you're totally right, but because it makes you a little stupid. Because it limits your imagination. Yeah, and I guess are the limits on the care are the limits that, that we see in the character are they like the daughter? Right? Who knows what'll happen to her? It seems like she's sort of going down the same path as her mother or Miss Poor Miss Kilder, who's like pray more. Yeah, <laughs> pray more, yeah. shop less. Yeah, pray, yeah, pray more. And the only thing she enjoys is eating, which is like this. This is a very poignant passage. It's very sad. Yeah, I'm um, like not even that mad that her favorite thing is eating, and I feel like Virginia Woolf is kind of a bitch about it. <laughs> no, but it's in such a sad way. It, it, yeah. Like, yeah, I didn't even think she was being a bitch about it, but um, but she does start to be a bitch about. Oh, so and so got fat. Yeah. Oh, no, I just mean that she thinks it's sad that that's her one joy. And I'm like, w- none of us have any joy, man. Give me give me my only <laughs> yeah. joy is eating ice cream. Yeah, yeah. yeah shove an eclair in your face and just be happy there's something to be <laughs> some, some <laughs> that pleasure there are sweets. in life. Yeah. 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 What a weird way to end. Uh, <laughs> I think it's. I mean, no, it was, this is a very stream of consciousness ending for a uh, very stream of consciousness <laughs> novel. So I think it's great. Yes. I will say, I will probably be emailing and texting a lot of people in my life to just say, like, read a ton of books from 1925, just that one year, and see what happens to your brain. Because I <laughs> bet it'll be a lot of things. Yeah. It yeah. will become galaxy. And in a, but in a, like, 
oh man, Great Gatsby's that year too. Like, yeah, 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 man. <laughs> just like get on the crazy train. Rita Needle Loose first. She's the best. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, Katie, do you have a game? I have a game that unsurprisingly is based on all the things I learned about prosthetics in movies. <laughs> yes, that's right. Cool. So you're going to receive varying amounts of information um, about the prosthetics in the movies, this okay. quiz that you're about to take. But most of it is identifying whether the prosthesis being discussed is or is not a penis. Ah, yes. Okay. You're the, the, the central traumatic I mean, moment of your youth. Mm-hmm. If if this yes. if, if Lauren Stern had written this game, it would all be a penis, even when it was not. You know, it's like that. But wait, is that that's an ear? Oh no, okay, it's a penis. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, con- that there's that contemporaneous <laughs> illustration of somebody whose like nose is a dick, and yeah, he has yeah, yeah. balls rep- on his lip as his mustache. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. If Lauren Stern wants to do the games, I'll retire yeah. from that. Set up. <laughs> I, I would hand them to him. But okay, so so are you re- are you ready? Absolutely. All right. Here's here's a quote. This for some reason was controlled by two gigantic levers that were on the side of the set that a guy was wrenching around to operate. Is this quote about a minor mishap hoisting Jim Carrey's enormous green body in the Grinch or a prosthetic penis? Penis. Yeah, I'm going to go with penis, even though it actually sounds like it should be the sliding doors on Star Trek TOS. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) How is it? How how is it? um, Yeah. How is it possible? (laughs) How are the sliding doors possible? No. How is it possible? This is about a penis. Oh, well, it's a giant penis. Yeah, it's a giant <laughs> penis operated by levers. It's like a it's a robot penis. So I don't see what's so hard. Oh, to good call. It's a robot penis. Happening. Oh yes, trans Michael Bay Transformers. It's a, penis. It's a yeah. steampunk style robot penis where we have we, we got the you know the the levers and the whistles and the whoo whoo you know to make the, the, the penis Decepticon Optimus yeah. penis. Yes, it's okay. yes, it yes. Is a, it's a steampunk Optimus Prime penis is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. That's that's real now. That's what it, what it was. The, that's the reality now. Um, all right. Question. Question two. Um, another quote. Gosh, this could either look totally ridiculous, or it will really help me get lost in the character. Is that Nicole Kidman on her prosthetic nose, or Mark Wahlberg? Damn it! That was going to be my other guess. It's. I think it's Nicole Kidman, but I. I either they're just i'm still i'm 55 45 i i'm committed to the bet and the bet is i'm gonna answer penis <laughs> for each of these so it's mark Wahlberg for boogie nights okay so meg did you did you make your decision is it were you going with um are you you're going with nicole kidman yeah yes. mostly because i you know she had to wear it the entire time i have no idea if mark Wahlberg was like doing method and <laughs> just had like no, dude, he did he did he wore it he wore it all the time i'm not kidding Okay, this is news. This is yeah, news. He, yeah, he just like wore it. Whoa. Because <laughs> yeah. I really can only get at this character. Oh my God. If I have yeah. like, like uncomfortable pants. Yeah. What a weird psycho dude. Oh man. Yep. Why was yep. this not? Why are we not talking about Daniel Day Lewis? I still think I'm going to go with Nicole Kidman. 
Okay, that's fair. You you can't say you don't learn anything in these quizzes, though. No, I learned that was life-altering, frankly. <laughs> Hogarth published Freud, and I learned that Mark Wahlberg wore the fake penis. He all the time. Um, okay, so uh, here's another here's another quote. Um, I wouldn't call it fun, but it was you know it was interesting. This stuff really happened, so you gotta treat it as real. Is this about a prosthetic penis, or is this Leonardo DiCaprio on the challenges of acting in prosthetics in the film J. Edgar? Uh, and one review describes him looking like a tall, wrinkled baby wearing a suit. <laughs> Just as a yeah, <coughs> and I'm trying to figure out what the other one that it's that it's a what the penis cunt it really happened. You know, what, what penis could it be? It really happened, so you got to treat it as real. I mean, I again, I committed to the committed to the bit, and I feel like via Lacan and others, because you know the phallus takes on so many significant. It is that it is the but, law. Yeah, it is it the is, law. It is the law. Father. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty. I like again. I think it's DiCaprio, but I I have to answer that it's the prosthetic penis. Yeah, I'm gonna That's go with fair. penis, especially because I have to think in the you know the reality effect. It's really about how I interpret it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yes, it's true. So you're both going with penis. This is uh, I have so many, but I'm gonna stop at one point. Um, okay, the prosthetic took about three hours to put on. It was a bit of a trial. Is this about uh, Cherry Darling's machine gun leg from uh, Robert Rodriguez's mm. Planet Terror or prosthetic testicle? I cheated a little in We Are the Millers 2013, Jennifer Aniston, Jason Sudeikis. Look it up. I'm going to, you know what it is? I'm just going to do Star Trek answers for this whole show, and it's the ears. Please do. <laughs> oh, yep. It was the Ferengi. Ferengi yep. ears, yeah. No, Vulcan ears, Ferengi face. Oh okay. Oh, okay. Well, for Ferengis like to be massaged on the ears. I'm not even. Uh, so we're, do, we're doing a different podcast. Yeah, no, but, uh, but the brow ridge should should be three hours, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, I, I, I uh, since we're doing a TNG dork hours, I do like I'm doing if, TOS. You jerks. Yeah, oh, yeah. We well, are doing. I'm, doing, I'm doing the other yeah, one because Patrick Stewart is my captain. Yeah, you're doing <laughs> That's Spock. Fair. But I, I just, I love, you know, I like, can you imagine being Jonathan Frakes and strolling onto the set past uh, Michael Dorn as he spent like five hours to get into the, it's like, oh, I slept in today. It's like, fuck yourself, you asshole. You know? <laughs> I mean, but, I would have still, be, I would have honestly been the most mad at LeVar Burton for being like, I put my comb over, like my, put my headband <laughs> over my eyes and that's my costume, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I, well, I could see LeVar Burton like sitting there, like commiserating with my, it's like, yeah, these assholes like Stuart and Frakes. Who just well, they don't have to get into character like us and, and Michael Dort's like five hours you shut. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right shut exactly. the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> you wanna have you wanna have real dork hours though? Everybody was completely uncomfortable. I don't know, you two may already know this, but the original uh next generation costumes had suspenders in them and um patrick stewart hurt his back so bad that his doctor was like you should sue <laughs> no, I did not. and that's why jonathan frakes uh gets in chairs uh by whipping his leg over the back oh if you, if you notice suspenders? because his back is so uncomfortable in the in the costume that- and they changed it to oh, a two-piece later I but i did not know that yeah. Wow. How do they? Yeah. How much time do you think they needed to spend getting uh, Troy's titties into that thing? 
Oh, so much time. Well, I, I do. I, the the the. Uh, I do know that like her hairstyle in the first couple seasons, like she's talked about, was like yeah, that took like that was like hours and hours and oh, hours. Oh, it's enormous. And, her hair is yeah. a perfect. It's huge. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's but lovely. Yeah. I don't even remember what the question was, except one. It's like three hours for prosthetic balls, which that sounds yeah. right. I that I can't imagine that it would take less time than that. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're going. You're you're going balls and i uh just here's the last one and meg you you went penis right no i went start i went vulcan ears yeah oh my god you went oh okay 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 i'm really the one who started us on this path and i yeah i don't (laughs) thank you i don't regret it it. no take us down this path anytime you want okay so here's here's last question uh here's a quote i felt quite happy just to be in it I guess they're all, all different kinds of prosthetics, but this is sort of like a Tempur-Pedic memory foam. <laughs> Oof, okay. Working. Yeah. I'm go I'm trying. Yeah. Penis or not penis? Yeah. No, it's a penis. Simple question. I mean, I just, yeah, that's probably what they're made out of, the prosthetic penises, right? It's memory foam. It fat. sounds like a fat suit, though. It it's a fat suit, yeah. <laughs> it does. But, uh, uh, yeah. Again, I just. What do you think? It's you know it's how like at a quiz when you don't when you've not studied at all for it you're you just pick C and like you yeah. have a statistic you know you'll probably like get over the majority or something like that. I, that's what uh-huh. I if I just answer penis for all of this I'll. I'll, I'll I'll get I'll get I'll get like a D grade. You know, <laughs> trying to think of what else would feel like um, memory foam, right? Besides, that's the worrying fat suit or the penis. Oh, what about like the Superman costumes that have the fake boobs and stuff? Oh yeah, they do have. I'm gonna go with Superman. I'm like real out there today. I just it's fine. I also uh, did I not it. hit the weed pen. I'm just fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're just we're having fun today. So uh, Tristan's trying to wreck the curve here. Um, <laughs> but okay, are you ready to find out? Yes, of course. Things? Yes, are they okay. about Jonathan Frakes? Please, uh, I could. Uh, yeah, what do you, what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> when he realized he wasn't the sex um, symbol. <laughs> Never. <laughs> when he grew the Never. beard. Yeah. Grew the beard. Um, he did grow the beard. Uh, okay. So question one, the, the levers, gigantic levers. That's, uh, Daniel Radcliffe's penis in the two 2016 comedy Swiss army man. He plays a corpse whose penis, um, tells the direction. Okay. The steampunk Optimus Prime penis is, is a better cinematic idea. Yeah. 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 I'm shocked that that one was right. Yes, that one was right. Um, the second one that was Nicole Kidman's nose. Meg, you got that. And uh, the, the context was like it allows me to be in the character or whatever. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It helped me get lost in the character. Jonah, Did she also jo- like go fuck a bunch of her friends? Um, <laughs> that's between her and the eyes wide shut of God, I guess. <laughs> but the the uh the I wouldn't call it fun. It was you know interesting. The stuff really happened. That's Jonah Hill, Wolf of Wall Street, oh. uh, about his prosthetic penis at a pool party scene. Right. Okay. Um, all right. All right, Mike. I'm 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 feeling okay. Three out of five years. <laughs> yep. You're killing it. Um, 
okay, I was uh, the the three hours. That is a testicle that was bitten by a tarantula in We Are the Millers. Oh, sure. So Kids, answer C. Every question, answer <laughs> C. You'll pass. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, and the last one, it is a it, that is um Jason Schwartzman from uh uh about, about the overnight the film the overnight and it is about a prosthetic penis. Um, he goes on to say, if you wanted to, you could squeeze it and it would kind of like slowly rise back up to its original size. So I call it a temper penis. I got a oh. B minus. I got a fucking B minus yep. by answering penis to every question. Yep. Remember that. Any students listening, answer penis to every question. B minus living, baby. (laughs) You'll at least pass. Yeah. Not even that bad. I'm not, I have no regrets about my answers, my out there, my Superman's foam boobies and, and, uh, no, Spock ears. No, I mean, I, I, I loved, I loved it all. Um, congr- congratulations, Tristan, and um, congrats, congratulations, um, Megan, for for getting us on a Star Trek path. I really appreciate that. Oh, and so. just a note to all of our listeners: there's going to be way the fuck more of that now that we've opened that door. <laughs> yeah, open yeah. that can of worms. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> we're a Trek people. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so good. Um, anyway, this has been Better Than Dead. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Telsarsaurus. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie at Katie Crywo. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Red Pod. And email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you want to tell us about why you do weird pocket knife business and if it's <laughs> coherent or not. Um, our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo is created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Rate and review and subscribe, especially you new listeners. Thank you. Thank you a lot. And write us a cute review. Next week, we have Austin's Persuasion and Lady Chatterley's Lover, aka Dicks Out for Fash, on deck after that. So thank you, comrades. <laughs>